HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Are food pantries, in fact, racist, classist, unable to combat hunger? Rebecca D'Souza thinks they might be. In Feeding the Other, Rebecca demonstrates how food pantries stigmatize their clients through a discourse that emphasizes hard work, self-help, and economic productivity rather than food justice and equity. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Hi, thanks for having me. So you mentioned in the intro um, a friend of yours in grad school that mentioned kind of offhand, you walk around as though you don't know you're different. So can you talk about that experience of learning how to be racialized here in America as an immigrant from India? Sure, and that is a really um, long and, uh, I think, complicated question to answer. But um, it certainly has been true in my case where, and I, and I point to that experience because it was, for me, the most poignant. And I think I didn't understand what this friend of mine was actually trying to tell me until many years later when I finally understood how the dynamics of race and class operate in this country. Now, coming from India, uh, you know, I grew up in a fairly middle-class background. Um, I came, uh, as most recent Indian immigrants do, uh, or to study further. Um, And so I I was bringing with me a lot of class privilege, the kind of privilege that I had in India as well. But when I came here, I immediately started to sense that I was devalued in a particular way, whether that was in the classroom with my students, who were predominantly white, or even just um, in, in, just in public spaces. I didn't feel it so much with my peers or other graduate students, but certainly in public spaces, the sense that I was of less value I felt myself being more and more um, invisible, 
but at the same time also hyper visible. And I think that for me, for the last you know 20 years, has been uh, a work in progress, trying to figure out where I fit in this racial hierarchy in the United States. So when this friend uh, pointed out to me that I, you know, I I walk around like I don't know I'm different, uh, he was right, because at that point I hadn't really recognized that I was different. And that has been a gradual learning process for me. Yeah, and then do you think um, in your years of studying here and teaching here that it, it has changed how you, you walk around or carry yourself, um, or are you still able to push back on that? I think it's definitely changed how I carry myself, um, how I perceive other people, and I am always cautious. I'm, I'm far more cautious now than I used to be. And, you know, um, I think I, like many of the characters in my book, I also ha have learned and recognized the meaning of my skin color, and that is always with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's really interesting from this POV of other as self-perceived and perceived by others that you then attacked the research that you did. Um, you talk about how food pantries kind of form this base of this food system pyramid. Um, can you explain how you got into what, what made you want to research this and, and kind of dig deeper? Sure. So it was uh, really just, uh, I guess, so coincidence in some ways. I just moved to Duluth in Minnesota, and I came for the job right after graduate school. Uh, you know, I was exploring the city, driving around, and one day my husband and I drove past this church. It's called the First United Methodist Church, and it sits sort of on the top of the hill. It's a huge church. We noticed this large line, like 500 people going out the church door onto the road. And it's sort of a busy intersection. So, you know, there are cars and a lot of honking and traffic and all of that. They're all holding laundry baskets. And we had no idea what was going on. Later, we learned that this was a food distribution site for this food program called Ruby's Pantry. Basically, it gave out a whole laundry basket of food, basically, for $15. And so here were... 400 or 500 people lined outside in, you know, I think it was like negative five at the time. Oh, my gosh. To, yeah, get food. And they waited for two, three, four hours to do this. And that was really what got me uh, interested in the topic of hunger and food insecurity. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I come from a health communication background, so I was really interested in um the meanings of health, how people coped with their hunger and food insecurity. And that's what I went into the field looking to study. Mm -hmm. But as I analyzed, you know, and was and listened to people's voices and what they were saying, what really came up was with these perceptions of negative value and, you know, what I call neoliberal stigma. Mm -hmm. yeah, and well, that was what they talked about. I mean, they talked about coping with food, they talked about not having access to food, and all of those things. But this was a common thread that connected all the stories together. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, we'll get into the specifics of um, Ruby's Pantry and Chum, um, Chum Food, I believe it's called, um, a bit later. But um, I want to talk about how you noticed the visibility of your race and your quote-unquote visible difference. How did that affect how subjects approached you and you approached subjects? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And, and that definitely came up in terms of the methodology for uh, the study. You know, I, in the book I write about the fact that um, it was certainly much easier for people of color to talk to me about the meanings of their race, racism, stigma, and how they were, or how they experienced living in Duluth. And uh, for white people, it, they actually didn't talk that much about negative experiences, at least racially, right? Uh, because they are the dominant racial group. Uh, some of them would disclose to me um, will be rather explicit in their own racism. But that didn't happen a lot. And I think it might have happened more was I not a person of color. Hmm. So I think they there was some self-censoring. So you think, um, you think they were more forthcoming or less forthcoming because you're a person of color? I think so. And, and you know what's also interesting in the study design was that I didn't really ask direct questions about racism. Mm -hmm. And what was really fascinating to me was that there was this one question which opened up to all of these stories. And the question was, do you think Duluth is a friendly place to live in? And this was the question that was a can of worms. So people of color, you know, said, some of them said yes, but a lot of them said yes, but there's also this. And white people tend to say, yes, it, it, you know, it's a friendly city, but it used to be a lot friendlier. Mm -hmm. And if I'd ask, you know, so what has changed? Oftentimes the response was that it's become more diverse. Um, there are people from Chicago coming, and all of these are color-coded, uh, you know, discourses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not to beat a dead horse, but how do you think the research findings might have differed if you were accompanied with a white colleague or even if the research was carried out by a white professor, a white um, researcher? Yeah, so, so the other piece I should mention is that, you know, so this was a study that was done by... Um, uh, so the data collection itself was done by two faculty, and one of them was a white male. Uh, and then there were, we also had students who did some of the interviews. So, so while I did many of the interviews, I did have students, and they were, for the most part, white. And then there was also a white male faculty doing this. And so there were some differences. And I think the biggest difference was not so much in white people's self-censoring, but in people of color being more expressive about their experiences to me. Mm. And that was also perhaps because I had a lot of follow-up. And mm. I would push them on some of the questions or ask them to you know, give me more detail about what they were talking about. Mm. 
So you also talk about going to this food access summit and encountering a woman named Trinity and an unnamed um, indigenous woman and how they both kind of in this very dramatic way identify with real firsthand examples, how they're kind of at the mercy of capitalism and racism. So can you talk about those two examples? Sure. So Trinity was actually from uh, Ruby's Pantry. She was a client at Ruby's Pantry. And also the name, you know, it changed. That's not her real name. But she was perhaps one of the most astute um, clients that I had the privilege of talking to. She had worked in several different arenas. Um, and she really, I mean, I, I think I got, I got this this idea of neoliberal stigma from really what she says, right? And she says, there's damned if you do, damned if you don't. You know, I walk around the grocery store with my grocery cart, and if I have soda and potato chips in the cart, then people are look at me with these dirty looks, like, why are you eating such bad food and being such a bad health citizen? Mm-hmm. But then if I have this really healthy food, they look at me the same way. And they're like, why are you, you know, buying these luxury items uh, when you're, you know, using food benefits? So she was sort of, she really captured that, you know, this sort of impact that poor people and people who are hungry and food insecure are caught within. It's almost like they, they, they cannot make good choices, and no matter what they do, um, they merit, you know, this uh, really vir- virulent sort of um, disdain from people. Uh, so that was Trinity. And the other individual that, that I mentioned, this Native woman, I did not actually speak to her uh, either before or after, so she was a complete stranger to me. And I was just part of that conference and part of that panel, just observing and participating, and um, that was really the situation where, you know, these panelists are talking about all this great work that they're doing in the food pantry. Uh, They're trying to get more culturally relevant food for their clients. And so in that context, one of the women said, you know, we've even managed to get venison in our food pantry uh, for Native uh, people. And so, you know, this is when this woman raises a hand and she says, you know, excuse me, uh, but I have a hard time, you know, hunting deer because of the lack of um, licenses and so many regulations. Um, Why is that? You know, and that was really the sense of her question. And here you are being able to source venison for the food pantry. In a sense, I should be able to do this for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what was more significant to me was that none of the four women on the panel were able to respond to her. They just got very awkward. Uh, they were silent. Uh, they changed the subject. Mm-hmm. And there was just that whole moment fell flat for that woman would ask the question, the Native woman. And for me, this is that, you know, that separation between people of color and and white people. Their worlds are so different. 
you know, and whiteness hardly knows how to respond in the face of these important questions, Mm -hmm. important political, social questions. Yeah, to add another paradox in the ring, you write that the U.S. produces enough food to feed everyone 2,700 calories a day, but still hunger persists. So what are the forces at play that enable hunger to persist? There are several forces at play. You know, so first off, you know, I should back up a little bit and say that, you know, Hunger and food insecurity affect about 40 million people in the U.S. One of the things we know is that if you're poor, you're more likely to be hungry, right? And that makes sense. Um, One of the things that some of us as activists and advocates uh, say is that hunger is just uh, this more manageable term that we use to describe poverty, So in a way, poverty has been recast as hunger. And so really, when we talk about solutions to hunger, right, we're also talking about solutions to poverty. And if we're talking about what causes hunger, it's the same thing as the things that cause poverty, right? And those are things like cuts to social programs, inadequate employment, poor housing, oppressive debt. Right? These are all of these large, broad-based phenomenon right, that affect millions of people in the U.S. who then suffer from poverty and then also suffer from hunger and food insecurity. Mm-hmm. But, as a, but as a country, we find it more manageable, and I think politically it's less risky to talk about hunger than it is to talk about poverty. Mm-hmm. And so then this, and why is it more manageable? Well, because we can set up this entire, the second tier of the system, right? The food pantry system um, to solve it and, and, and snap benefits. And it's sort of this piecemeal approach to solving the larger problem, which is poverty. This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back. We're talking about how hunger um, is... as 
as opposed to poverty. And um, I think you bring up a really interesting point in the intro, which is that um, the answer that a lot of people turn to is charity or just throwing money at it. And why is that also not the solution? Well, you know, charity, well, again, you know, like I said, there is 40 million people in the United States who experience hunger and food insecurity. This is a gigantic number of people, right? I mean, we cannot have a piecemeal charitable approach to solving this problem. We need a large-scale solution to this very large problem. And the only entity that that can set in place a large-scale solution is the government. No piecemeal charitable approach is going to solve this problem. Right, because if you think about all the food shelves and the food banks, you know some of them are large, some of them are small. Uh, it's really unsustainable. And furthermore, charity is a really undignified way to solve the problem of hunger, because it takes us away from more rights-based approaches to to food. Mm-hmm. Right, this idea that people should have food—it's a basic need and therefore a basic right. But instead, we we are almost saying, well, food is you know. Uh, is just some. We'll just give you our leftovers, mm-hmm. right? And that's how you're going to get your food. And that's what charity does. And that's why you know I call it. You know, and many people before me have also uh, called it a really undignified way, mm-hmm. and it increases the stigma that circulates around people who are poor and hungry as well. Yeah, let's get back to that image um, that you mentioned at the top of the episode with the hundreds of people in line for rubies. Um, Can you talk about rubies and chum, um, what their intended goals are, and how they might miss the mark? Sure. So so I use these two um, case studies and these two organizations because they operate in a... They they both give food to people who are hungry and food insecure, but they have slightly different operating procedures. So chum is sort of your very traditional food pantry. Um, They... Um, you know, you come in if you are hungry or food insecure, you fill out some paperwork, and if you're eligible, then you, or you qualify, then you'll get food. They also have some restrictions on how often you can come back for food. So I believe it's like once every month you can come in and get food. And you don't pay anything for it. And the food you get is based on how big your household is. Now, Ruby's Pantry is a very different approach. There you come in, you get this laundry basket full of food, like, you know, it's probably around, you know, 50 to 60 pounds of food per person. But you do pay something. So you pay, like, a flat fee of 20 bucks, and that's what you get. And, you know, what I, why I say they both miss the mark, you know, in different ways. So in Chum, um, the, it, the way in which it's set up is, like it's a traditional food pantry, so you have, you have volunteers who are organizing this whole initiative. And, you know, they're really well-intentioned, right? Uh, they're giving up their time and their energy to do this work. But there's such a separation um, in terms of class and in terms of race between the people giving out the food and between the people receiving the food. And it sort of reinforces um, the stigma mm. of race and class in those spaces, um, also, the volunteers, even though they're very well-intentioned, they too are um, get caught in sort of these um, the stigmatizing dynamics, right? I mean, they too can be found to, um, you know, um, think about think about clients in terms of them abusing the system, right? And whether they're trying to scam the food pantry by taking more than they should. 
And so you do find those discourses coming up as well, which is really ironic because we've got so much abundant food. And mm-hmm. when I actually speak to, you know, people in Second Harvest, they're like, no, we've got more than enough food. There's no way you can scam the food pantry. You know, there's no such thing as a scam because there's enough food, you know, second-tier, you know, industrial surplus food to feed everybody. Um, so so that's sort of one of the reasons why they miss the mark. And, of course, it's short-term. You're getting food only for, you know, three or four weeks. It barely lasts you, um, you know, a, while, a little while longer. The food is not necessarily the food you want to eat. Um, it's, for the most part, processed industrial food. Um, many of the clients I spoke to also had um, had a particularly uh, you know particular dietary restrictions that they were working with, so that food didn't often work for them. Um, and, and and so it's really not the best way for us to be giving food to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and then in, yeah, no, go ahead. You, you go for it. Oh, I was just going to say in Ruby's pantry, you know, one of the things. It's that that happens over there that was particularly unsettling for me as a researcher and somebody who's studying the language and studying the discourses, was that they actually say Ruby's Pantry is a hand up, not a handout. So that's actually the slogan for Ruby's Pantry, and the reason they call it that is because they um because people is because people pay twenty dollars. So in some ways they're saying, you know, you're paying for your food and therefore you don't need to feel the shame and the stigma that other people, you know, those other people who use the traditional food pantries do. Hmm. So in some ways they're sort of reinforcing this gap, uh, you know. Right, right. Yeah. You know, uh, in, among poor people. And what was interesting was that many of the people who use Chum also were using food, Ruby's pantries. So the difference is not real. Mm-hmm. It's a socially constructed difference. Right, so you're talking about all this kind of self-awareness of food pantries um, that they have enough, um, that there is that this stigmatiz- stigmatization. But what is persisting this? What, is it like a matter of training employees differently, or what needs to change? You know, yeah, you know, that I think that's a large part of it. Um, one, you know, one thing we do know is that food pantries often run on this really shoe, you know, this really tight budget, right? I mean, they barely have any budget to hire employees, and they run mostly on volunteer labor. And that's part of it, because um, one of the privileges of being a volunteer is that you get to decide the terms of your employment, right? You can come and go when you want. Uh, You can come for, you know, a couple of weeks and then leave, as opposed to a regular paid employee who doesn't determine their terms, right? And so many of the food pantries that I've seen, they have little or no training at all for volunteers and little or no training at all even for some of the regular staff. Um, and there's no orientation. There's no sense of... Um, so, so people come in there to volunteer having no sense of the larger food system of which they are part of or of, of which they are now stepping into. They just come in there thinking, oh, we're just going to do some good. I have a couple of hours here to give. Uh, you know, I'll go to the food pantry, I'll give out some food, I'll probably make friends with some other volunteers, and that's usually what happens. And it'll be a way to kill time, right? Um, But they're not thinking about the food system, they're not thinking about the food injustice, they're not thinking about the actual people who are coming through those doors, the stories that they bring with them, you know, um, the experiences that they've had, the jobs that they've had, or why they're really there. 
And a large part of that is because there is no orientation, there is no training. Um, and I think that, and so the problem persists. Uh, one of the things I write about in the end of the book is that, you know, food pantries, because there are so many of them, there's something like, you know, 50,000 food pantries, um, food programs of which, like, you know, 30 to 35,000 are food pantries. There is, so there are, like, thousands of these food pantries, and there really needs to be a way for them to organize and to sort of think of themselves differently um, and to maybe even think of ways in which not only can they be uh, more racially sensitive and sensitive in terms of class to people coming in there, but also start working on advocacy, you know, and for changing the system, not just, you know, this, you know, this quick fix sort of stopgap solution of a food pantry, but actually long-term sustainable changes uh, so people are not food insecure anymore. And so I think that really needs to happen in the food pantry arena, but it's not yet happening. Yeah, um, we've been talking about the stigmatization for all episode, but I realize we didn't really quite define it. Um, what are some of the neoliberal ideas that um, conversely persist the stigma? Yeah, so, you know, just to back up a little bit, uh, you know, this is a big, long word and complex word, and I think people sometimes find it tricky to get their heads around it. But neoliberalism, basically, it's a political economic idea, right? It's a political economic theory or doctrine. It basically argues that privatization of public resources is the best way to solve social problems. So in a sense, it says, you know, we can be better, uh, and our well-being can be enhanced through the market and through business forces and through minimal uh, government interventions. So it's sort of the cornerstone of conservative ideology. And it also implies then in practice the rollback of public goods and services, welfare cuts and, you know, what have you. And so, you know, the Welfare Reform Act in 1996, historically that was sort of where we saw uh, this idea really put into practice and put into policy. Um, so neoliberalism, and, but here's the switch right here is what, what I call a neoliberal stigma. What we also know is that neoliberalism, even though it's a political economic theory, that idea of economic value has actually penetrated our daily lives and even our personal thoughts and feelings to the extent that now we think that if you're economically successful and you're productive in the marketplace, right, then you are valued. Mm -hmm. So now think about people who are productive but not necessarily in the marketplace, right, if you think of women's labor and the work that women do in the home. That is all valuable, but it doesn't produce value in the marketplace because we haven't put a price on it, right, again, because of our values. Um, so again, a neoliberal stigma, those who are economically successful and, product and productive are valued, while those who are not seen as contributing to the economic system are devalued. And and those who are taking away from the economy, right? I mean, and these are people who may be called free riders, right? And oftentimes the poor are seen as this because they're not contributing to the economy, but then they're getting welfare. And so then they're even more or further devalued. Mm -hmm. And so neoliberal stigma, you know, this notion of hard work, personal responsibility and accountability is used to mark people as inferior or superior, and I also find that it's more intense today as it was, you know, 20 years ago, where now it's not, it's, it's not even hard work, but it's really wealth. You know, wealth and money has become an indicator of value. 
regardless even of how that wealth was produced. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, wealth has started to humanize people, and the lack of wealth and poverty dehumanizes people. Mm -hmm. And that's really this what I've called neoliberal stigma. Yeah, with all that in mind, um, you, to wrap, um, you talk about how food pantries as they are, are completely um, inadequate. So how might they change their ways to actually dismantle the food system? So, uh, you know, like I was saying, there are about 35,000 food pantries, you know, so that's like a huge force, right? I mean, that's a lot of food pantries. That's a lot of organizational power. Uh, That's a lot of voices. And one of the things I argue is that, you know, food pantries, you know, those volunteers, those staff, they are actually closest to the people experiencing hunger and food food insecurity, right? I mean, people come into them, and they are sort of the first people who see them. Um, And I really think that they can play a huge role in making, in in shifting the narrative, right, around hunger and food insecurity, that it's not, you know, poor, lazy people who are hungry and food insecure, uh, but it's people with value, right? And so they can shift these narratives surrounding people who are hungry and food insecure and start to change those narratives and also start to become advocates for, 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 for people who are hungry and food insecure, and even better, to create spaces where people who are hungry and food insecure can actually speak for themselves and on their own terms. Because I think they have the best sense of what the problem is and where the problems they experience lie and can bring those in the best possible way to the public. Mm-hmm. So even just maintaining how they're operating, you think, would still work? It's just a matter of changing language and attitude? Well, I I don't think they're a long-term solution. So, you know, but I'm also, I, I know how important food pantries are to people who are, to uh, who experience food insecurity. I mean, they're necessary. So, you know, I didn't want to, in my book, go out and say, you know, let's shut them all down tomorrow. But in some ways, I, I do want, I would like to see an exit strategy for mm-hmm. food pantries. Right, whether it's 10 years or 20 years, you know, how can food pantries sort of phase out so we can get um, a more equitable approach to dealing with hunger and food insecurity, right? And, and you know, one simple way is to increase SNAP benefits, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but then, like I said, it's just a, we also need other broad-based solutions like, you know, livable wages, employment, uh, you know, debt reduction, all those things will have an impact on hunger and food insecurity. So so I do think food pantries need to be phased out, but I think it's a phase out. It's not an immediate, you know, into food pantries. And in the meantime, you know, part of that, that plan to phase out has to be um, questions of, you know, what does it mean to have a right, a right to food approach mm-hmm. in the food pantry, right? How, can, how do we change our attitudes right now and not just so that we can be kinder and more caring, but that we can actually fight for people's rights and stand with people in solidarity with people who are poor. Yeah. And I think that shift needs to happen. Um, yeah, so I mean, you know, in the last chapter of the book, I say, you know, there needs to be this transition from being good Samaritans to good citizens. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, because that's how they think of themselves now, that they're good Samaritans, but they really need to be thinking of themselves as being good citizens, and that means fighting in solidarity with people who don't have. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining me today, Rebecca. No problem. It's a pleasure.
Meant to be eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.